I hate, I know this sounds terrible because I understand that it, it is a necessity, but I hate when I can hear people breathe. I hate it, especially mouth breathers, of course, but just any, I hate it when I can hear people breathing. It just gets on my nerves. How do you feel about snoring? Um, I, luckily cat doesn't, but sometimes the dogs will. And um, I, I give them a little nudge to wake them up. And then I like readjust them. I'm like, here you go. Like sleep this way so you don't snore. I swear I'm a nice person and not at all a sociopath. Oh, no. I think you're one of the kindest people. I'm I'm a, an angry sleeper. So if I'm woken up by anything, like there's a shift in my personality. Like, Oh, really? Oh, I'm like, I'm low-key murderous about sleep. Like if I wake up to <laughs> snoring the amount of thoughts I have that are just like pure unintelligible rage. Okay. I think I'm the unhealthy one out of the two of us. Renee. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, Fred will jump on the bed and I'm like, get-, get the fuck off the bed. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, enough feelings. Let's talk about somebody else's feelings. Somebody we don't know. I love feelings. It's what <laughs> I, it's what I've spent the past four years of my life studying. that's what i've spent the last 35 years of my life avoiding at all costs we make such a great pair Mm -hmm. the peanut butter to my jelly yes and this podcast is the bread that squishes it together and we're oozing out the sides of the bread always the ooze is what makes it a good sandwich it really is like overload my pb and j honey if it ain't oozing i ain't cruising yeah i don't want it Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Read This Way. I am Jace Wingate, and this is... Renee Pogue. Still here. We're still here. And you know what? If having one glass of wine makes you happy, imagine having nine. And that's what this podcast is like. Okay. It's that line between, I don't like wine, why do people like this, and I want to go run naked in the woods. That's the level we're at. (laughs) Or like when you're like, oh my god, this edible isn't working. Let me eat another one. And then no! <laughs> at 2, 3 a.m. and you're watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Secret of the Ooze. And it's the most riveting thing you've ever seen in your entire life. You know, you put on a podcast to fall asleep. Your heart's racing. Your limbs are shaking. And you just realize that we are animals making sounds and mm-hmm. um, hyperimposing meaning to those animal sounds. Oh, yeah. I don't know why people get so uppity about language. We're just squeaking noises out of our mouth, and we have arbitrarily decided that those noises have meaning. I, I hope you are listening to this while you're trying to sleep. And I yes. hope you did eat an edible. I hope that's all you can think about for the rest of the evening. Because we're here to keep you up and live with mm-hmm. your demons. Yeah, let us be your sleep paralysis demon. I've always wanted Oh my god, it's what I've always wanted. Stop, <laughs> Renee. I'm living a dream right now. Someone is living in absolute terror of us at this moment. Wow. Somebody's fixated in bed, like poor little Nell in how haunting of Hill House. And it's just us hovering above them, screeching about um elder things and um evangelical Christianity. Ugh, and childhood trauma. Yes. 
but our specialties. Who doesn't love special skills? I don't think anyone in our generation escaped without childhood trauma. So we all have that in common. It's our universal theme. Thank you, baby boomers and Gen X, for making us carry several burdens and making us poor. (laughs) And making God. Now I'm sad. It was funny until you said that, and I'm like, God, should have gone to school for engineering. Maybe then I'd be rich. I guess we should have all just learned coding back at you know when we were young, and all we knew about computers was typing class. I still think about the girl in my high school who like killed my space coding, but then didn't go into it. I'm like, you could have made so much money. Oh man, I remember being 12, 13, and back when you know there were multiple sites you could host websites on, and uh, making my own little websites with friends of mine and it was like the highest css like wasn't a thing we just all did html and like i was like oh man i can make fonts look any size i want them to this is so cool you're like drunk with power no no that's why i'm recording a podcast in a basement instead of living (laughs) in bernardino valley yeah that's why i'm speaking into a little box on my desk I feel very spiritually aware. Like I I'm very attuned to the spiritual realm. I think that's kind of like why I do lean more towards, you know, believing in the occult, believing in the believing in witchcraft, owning my own spiritual energy because I like have come in contact with spirits in my life and I am very aware of like when entities want to be known and I'm really really good at both acknowledging them without giving them too much power. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely. I was, so I was like dog sitting last year for um, a very dear friend. And I like it, – it was a house where like when I went to go like learn how the dogs were taken care of, it was a house that was like, oh, this energy is really warm. I'm really excited to stay here. But the moment they had left and I was there by myself, it was that moment of like this house is too big. And there's an energy here that feels as though it's trying to like siphon off from me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't acknowledge it. And I stayed there and I was like, I'm just going to be really calm and know that like nothing can harm me if I let it know that I acknowledge it and also acknowledge that I'm not giving it the power to hurt me. That's smart. So then this is where the story takes a turn <laughs> because I had a friend come stay with me and she's also very attuned to the spiritual and we walk up to the house and it's like dark as fuck. And she goes, Oh, you know, there's an, there's something here. Right. And I turned to her before we go inside and I'm like, I was like, I'm very aware and we are not going to talk about this once we get inside Hmm. because we're not going to give it that energy. So we get inside and we, and we're going to bed and she's like, feel like something's happening while you're in here. And I'm like, what did I say? We are not Mm -hmm. going to talk about this because we just, what's the point, right? Like as long as I I feel, I feel as long as like I acknowledge whatever entity, whatever spirit is around me, that's enough. Like I acknowledge you. I see you. I'm not going to mess with you. Therefore I ask that you do not mess with me. I think that's fair. Any entity should respect that. 
And I think this one did. I like, there were weird moments where like, I would walk around the house and like this bear that was like sitting on top of a wardrobe had been knocked over. And I, of course, just put it back. Um, and then, but the animals acted like everything was fine. So it's either that the animals had gotten used to it, but, um, and it obviously like, the family that lived there obviously wasn't affected by it. And I think it's because they had lived there so long that they were fine. And I think I was new energy entering the space. Oh. But, um, and it, it was always, and I discovered like the bear thing at, while the sun was up. Because if I had discovered that at nighttime, I would have been like, okay, I need to not stay here. It really did like take a toll on me weirdly. Because I think it was it was taking care of like elderly animals, and I already had this mm-hmm. issue with like I literally cannot imagine an animal dying on my watch, especially an animal that's not mine. One of mm-hmm. my one of my greatest greatest fears because I don't I don't think I could bear the weight of that. Like regardless of if the animal died of old age while in my care, but yeah, it was just really intense, and I think that just kind of. You know, the house that I lived in when I was growing up, and a woman had died in that house. Ooh. So, like, we used to joke that, like, anything that weird happened was Madge. And, like, I've seen shades, like, you know, animal shades of, like, animals that had passed. I've seen them in my, like, peripheral and stuff like that. So, thank you for hearing my story. Huh, continuing forward, if you are joining us now, let's see, this is our sixth episode of Read This Way. So if you've been following from the beginning, you have a very clear idea of how our podcast works. If you are choosing to join us on the sixth episode, like the anarchists and counterculturalists, we know that you are, and we love you for it. Yes. Read This Way is a commentary podcast centered around graphic novels, and it's where Renee and I discuss comic books that we really love and enjoy and just want to mm-hmm. talk about it. And, you know, it's really just an opportunity for us to catch up and you get to be the fly on the wall while we babble at one another. I think we, we have fun babbling. I think we, I think we're truly like a really good babble time, you know? I love a babble time. I love a good babble time, a good babble <laughs> fantasy. This week we have picked Blankets by Craig Thompson. And this is actually going to be an experiment in our podcast where we are splitting up blankets over the course of four episodes, right, Renee? Mm-hmm. I think that's correct. So this is kind of like, I want you to think of this as like the green mile of our podcast. It's like the serial okay. novel. So like what's going to happen? Is there going to be a really great cliffhanger? Um, and I guess we're just all going to find out together. By the end of this episode, we'll know as much as you do, unless you've read it. No spoilers if you have. Yeah, if you've read it, don't say anything aloud. Yeah. Because we're not that type of, like, spoiler. And also, don't be me and interrupt Renee. Like, and <laughs> I, don't mi- I don't mind if you interrupt me, but, like, don't interrupt Renee because I think that's rude. Get out. Actually, we don't even want you to listen to our podcast. So you're going to interrupt us. Sit down and just relax and let our wonderful voices wash over you. It's like baptismal waters. Oh, very on track for what we're talking about. You know, very, very cute. Just, I like to I like to keep with the theme. I like mm-hmm. to keep with the theme. I do want to start this off 
by acknowledging that um, the production company that produced this uh, graphic novel is based out of Marietta, Georgia. So shout out to Top Shelf Productions. I thought Good that was on really, you. really cool. Yeah, I love I love a hometown success. When one of us shines, we all shine. <laughs> Communism. Because, <laughs> you know, I grew up in Marietta, so it's like I published this novel. You basically wrote this, right? Actually, to be fair, as I was reading this, I have so much in common with this character. It is crazy. As I was reading this, I was like, did Jace get like my teenage diary? Is that why he picked this book? Weird things like my mother grew up in Wisconsin and was working class. So I was like, well, that's weird that they're in Wisconsin. Also grew up evangelical. Also was picked by pastors at my church to go into ministry. Also was an outcast at youth camp. Also was ostracized by the popular rich kids. Also made friends with the weirdos. So I was just like, all right, stop. Stop it right now, Craig Thompson. No, thank you. Also, he's a Virgo. Also born 10 years before me. It's like we're the same person. You're like, I get it, okay? (laughs) I would say the diversion is I never fell in love with anybody at youth camp. Because that's like, that would be dangerous. Well, yeah, especially for me, but I'm working on this. Um, I'm working on this monologue for a show right now. One of my lines is that like the tragedy of being queer in the church is that we love too deeply. Mm-hmm. And because we love too deeply, we are willing to deny ourselves who we are because our parents are too scared of their names being in other people's mouths. I would say that's very true. I just, I, 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 you know, Renee, I agree with you. There were so many things that I kind of felt um, resonated with me because I also grew up, I grew up Baptist, evangelical Baptist. Mm-hmm. It was a double whammy. And I, I felt guilt at such an, at such a young age because I knew mm-hmm. I was gay and I always remember there were so many sermons and I remember I would pray, I would pray and be like, please God, like typical Southern gay stuff. Like, please God make me straight. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't want this. And I, I hate that like the church manipulates something that makes us so beautiful into mm-hmm. something that is our cross to bear. And I think that like a religion based in such misery that takes that takes and mutilates something into you should live a miserable life in order to get what you deserve after death. Like, what does that set you up for? To borrow one of the church's own parables, it's like they they say, take this light you have and hide it under many bushels and never speak of it ever again, because we've arbitrarily decided that this part of you isn't worth showing for me i was just like no like i'm not not gay everybody fantasizes about women that's like normal women are beautiful men are gross looking everyone knows that it's not gay it's just rational i came out when i was 18 after i had gone to college and like 
my parents wanted me to come home for that semester. And I think it's just so, I always reflect on that super hard. And like, I did get closure from it. My mom, I so you probably saw, I posted, well, you're not on Facebook, are you? Uh, I mean, like, I am present on there, but I'm never on Facebook. So I posted this huge status about National Coming Out Day. And I was like, I came out okay. 10 years ago. And it was this huge, it was just I was like being queer in the South. I'm a dime a dozen now. My story has been told. It's not necessarily reinventing the wheel. And then I was like, you need to go out in November um, and vote because being gay saved my life. It put my skin in the human rights game. So Mm -hmm. it gave me perspective being white growing up. I was never challenged until my sexuality came in direct conflict with what the people around me believed. And Basically, my mom calls me and leaves me this beautiful voicemail. Renee was so sweet. She's like, she's like, I love you. And I thought your post was beautiful. And I'm so sorry if you've if you've been hurt and you still carry that pain for what happened when you came out. And it, Renee was so sweet. And like, I do. I still have a chip on my shoulder growing up, from growing up in the South. And I think it's mm-hmm. because so many of those traits are unchangeable in those people when you sit and fester in a cesspool no amount of baptismal water can purify you from that that is such beautiful imagery and so true it's caustic and it's very you you have to accomplish this 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 and this to be considered holy to be considered worthy and like I spent my teenage years being like, okay, I have to do this, this, and this. Great. I'm going to do this, this, and this. Honestly, I don't feel ashamed admitting this now. I was a judgmental teenager, but that is a result of hearing these sermons delivered to me on a regular basis. I'm sure part of it was knowing that I was hiding a part of myself and kind of trying to overcorrect to prevent anybody from seeing what was wrong with me by focusing on what was wrong with everyone else. And like, I can't believe that this person thinks it's okay to be wearing that t-shirt. I can't believe that they listen to rap music. Da 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 da. So I'm a much freer, happier person now because I think after living through that and realizing that sh- sh- there's so much shit in life that doesn't matter. Exactly. There's so much free will that, you know, you just have to let people have. And if God exists, then he accepts us as we are. And there's nothing small or petty you can do to change that. And when it comes down to what God cares about, he's going to care a lot more about how you treat Like it says in the Bible, like how you treat the poor and the downtrodden and the fatherless and the widowed, then whether or not I watched Nightmare on Elm Street and enjoyed it, you know? Exactly. There's this amazing, I eventually, I want to get a tattoo of it, but there's there's this band that I'm obsessed with called Hop Along and you should look them up, Jace, because I think you might like them as well. But they have this amazing song where the refrain is, God is the one who changed. And when I listened to it for the first time, it just really resonated with me because I was like, yeah, that's true. Like, I am still 
the same person. I'm just the best, well, probably not the best version, but I'm just a better version of myself. Like I am who I am. It's God who is different than what I imagined they were when I was a teenager. I'm going to listen to it. That's beautiful. Oh, That particular song is called What the Writer Meant. What the Writer Meant. All of their, they have one album. It's called Bark Your Head Off Dog. And like every song on that, I have to pause and just like have an epiphany about the whole thing. So I just love it so much. So highly recommend. There's your music recommendation for the week is Hop Along. Box checked. Mm-hmm. Got it in there. I want to speak to what you said about um, when you were a teenager because mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of reflecting about this as well. And I think you have to give yourself the space to remember that you were developing your human mind and the things that you did to survive were children are mirrors up to nature, right? Right. So you're only doing what you thought was right. And I think it's when we become adults that we really do have to allow ourselves to question, allow ourselves to grow and heal from what happened in our early lives because again like it's too much to bear the grief or bear the resentment towards our elders Mm -hmm. when we get to these ages where we can't actually put a balm over it and really become our like our true realized selves like you said it's um it's just too much. I've I've carried a lot of anger and resentment in my life, not necessarily towards my family, but towards people who I felt wronged me. Mm-hmm. And it's within these last few years that I've really kind of, and I still fall short of it, but I've really taken the time to really ask myself, like, where does this come from? At this point, that has happened. That's years out from when the event actually occurred. So what am I really dealing with what what's causing me to focus on this because there has to be something underlying just besides my own hurt feelings but I feel like as long as you're not like a malicious asshole when you're a kid as long as you're not like the type of kid who like pushes other kids onto train tracks and actively works to harm people I am giving you permission listener to forgive yourself of how you were when you were a child and a teenager, because I guarantee you are a much better person now than you ever were when you were 13. And forgive those who hurt you. Set your boundaries. Know know where you are willing to place your relationship with those people. And I'm not even saying forgive them, but move on. Let yourself heal. Don't give them power over you. It's so much more powerful to let it go. You know, you always do yourself a disservice by holding on to things. Moving on from feelings hour. (laughs) God. (laughs) This is our therapy podcast, Unlearning Your Toxic Mindsets, based on our own experiences in, in religion as teenagers. Read This Way becomes a therapy podcast. It's just us doing free therapy. For an hour each week. Send send us your therapy questions, listeners. It's a lot cheaper than um, an actual licensed therapist. 
I think with our expertise combined, we could become one therapist. Like Voltron? Like the Voltron of therapists? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The Voltron of therapists. (laughs) Okay, so diving into blankets. Diving under blankets. Diving. So diving under the blankets. Our first chapter is entitled Cubbyhole. As we've read, Renee, we find out very quickly that the cubbyhole is not um, where you want to be. No. And it's it's terrifying. And it's terrifying that this is our first introduction to his father. And you have to wonder why that is. You're introducing us to the father as somebody who institutes this awful punishment for his child. Like, I don't understand how that father c- could sleep at night knowing that he put his child into an uninsulated part of the wall where there are spiders and just all of these things and go go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then threaten that he'll have to be there another night over two children sharing a bed that are eight and five. Oh, is that how old they are at this point? Yeah, because I think he's in third grade and um, okay. the younger brother's in kindergarten. I was very upset. I was very upset by that. Yeah, because it's such an extreme response to such a minor issue. All you have to do is just tell them to chill out and go the fuck to bed. Or why not set up the bed you're putting in the cubbyhole in the playroom and just be like, you're sleeping in here tonight. Why make it some terrifying punishment? But I do honor, like, not to make light of the cubbyhole. Craig does offer like observable, changeable behaviors. So I understand why Phil goes in the cubbyhole over Craig because he's like, he's so annoying, never lets me sleep, talks and pinches me and what's the bed. And then Phil is like, but he's mean to me. And it's like, mm-hmm. jury, I rest my case. Like mean is vague. You have to give me observable, <laughs> changeable. Just when you, you, you don't feel bad for Craig, then you immediately start feeling bad for Craig because you realize that like he might have sort of won in that situation, but as it goes, his life kind of is very difficult. Oh, yes. Well, and no one wins in that situation. Like, Mm -mm. as we see at the, um, this, this chapter is bookended. So at the end of it, of course, we see Craig feeling extreme guilt over getting his he didn't even get his brother put in the cubby hole. That was totally the dad. That was 100% the dad being an abusive prick. But when you're a child, you internalize that. Oh, you carry the weight of everything. You carry the weight of the world. Every action you make and every reaction that comes your way, you absorb as your mm-hmm. own fault. This happened because of a direct thing that was me versus like, why not? Like, I would almost, and again, this is my this is my trauma. This is me speaking from this place. The cubbyhole can be a threat, but why go all the way through and put a child in an uninsulated crawl space with spiders and then walk away? Have it be a threat. Put them in there for maybe 10 minutes. I mean, come back and get them. Be like, I know this is scary, but I will rescue you from these scary situations instead of just terrifying your child. Of course, we we say this as two people who are childless, so. Exactly. (laughs) But I I like to hope that I wouldn't lock my child into a crawl space to prove a point. But as you mentioned, 
after this um, really poignant first moment, we move on into we see Craig at school and we see that Craig is bullied terribly. I and I always am like, you know, I think Stephen King is the one who introduced to me thematically, like especially in it. It's like the monster Pennywise is terrifying mm-hmm. and absolutely horrific, but it's actually society that's the scarier thing like the things that the the adults ignore these bullies who operate on some like level of sociopathy that Mm -hmm. shouldn't be acceptable and the people who just turn a blind eye to everything negative that's happening not just these children who go missing but what happens to the children who stay there when like they throw him down a fucking hole and he hits his head he could have died yeah and then, of course, like enters the classroom, and it's typical, typical teacher fashion. It's never like, "Why were you late?" Hey, do you? I feel like at some point, I don't know why this is, happens in systems of education, but teachers will disconnect from helping their students. It, mm-hmm. it becomes this mentality. I think it's to clear their own conscience of I can't save all of them. So therefore, I just have to like kind of separate myself and let them learn amongst themselves how to be a person. Yeah, it's like I can't save all of them, so I'm going to focus on the ones that are easy. And then the rest of them, I'll just do what I can to get them through this class and out of my hair. What did you think about the uh, poem about eating poop? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, gross, but also like he's in third grade. It's not like he's uh, in his mid-20s and writing about people eating poop. He's in third grade talking about people who have hurt him. I was grossed out by it, but I understand it. I like I'm I'm staring at the image right now of like what he drew of these of all of these people eating the shit. I want to read the poem because I want to know what it says. I know. The, again, this is the story is very clearly told in a theocratic manner, which it's like, I know your mother and she's a good Christian lady and she would be disgusted with this. So again, he gets an F, not because the writing is bad, but because of subject matter, which I think is also fucked up. Yeah, that's not how you grade it. Mm-mm, that is not how you grade. Like this is the kind of kid who is he's going to excel in college because I think in college is when you have the professors who understand like, well, I didn't agree with your point of view. I didn't agree with your thesis, but you did the assignment and you wrote it well. So you got an A on it. And I think it's something about that higher education where you and of course, not every professor does this, but I was blessed with really great professors and you have those people who can disconnect their own emotions from the assignment. Which is their job. I think the moment that your personal religious ideals enter into a place where they don't belong, Mm -hmm. it's your job to check yourself. And I think the moment where you willfully embarrass a child in class, like there's literally no reason for- Like what lesson is she teaching? Exactly. You're so right. Like, what do you want this child to take, like, shame this child into? I mean, Loki, you're right. Writing a poem about other people eating shit, like, maybe, but maybe that's like an after, maybe that's what she ultimately does. She's like, I need to talk to you after class. Like, great. You could have saved the speech for after class. 
Yeah. It's clear this child is struggling. Maybe throw him a bone instead of making it worse. But again, at what point did this teacher disconnect and was like, oh, sorry, you're not my responsibility. It's my Mm -hmm. responsibility to shape your mind, not – but it's also my – it's also my job to shame you and like make you question your Christian ideals, but it's not my job to help you, which again, I think is also a keystone crux of the evangelical faith. It's like, it's my job to push you through this mold so you will come out exactly how you're supposed to, but it's not my job to guide you in any way. Exactly. And also, I really feel like he he doesn't glide over the babysitter thing but it's just very he never goes back to it i don't i don't know i just get this feeling because you're right he does glide over it and i think we're gonna come back to it because i think it's i think it's too ominous i think that's too ominous to leave it at yeah i think so too because that's a traumatic experience for him and his brother and we've already seen a little bit earlier when he talks about how he, he feels like brother. he's not a good older brother because yeah. he doesn't protect Phil. And like, what a gross babysitter. Like, who? It's, you know what? I, I I bet it's a situation of like, the family's poor. This is some like, farmer family friend who like, mm-hmm. wat- watches them for free. Oh, probably. And it's like, so it's, it's, there's like, there's no like interview for this babysitter, obviously. It's just like, who was around? All I will say about vetting babysitters in Wisconsin is that Ed Gein was the most popular babysitter in his little small town before he got caught. That was one of the main ways he made income was babysitting. And the kids loved him because he was creepy. (laughs) I'm screaming on the inside. (laughs) I love how he covers the skilt surrounding Phil, surrounding his relationship with his brother, but then comes to this like, I think it's very poignant for this to be in graphic novel form and him talk about how like drawing was a way in which he felt he could connect with his brother. Mm -hmm. I think it's so, it's so true. It's like when we look back on our childhoods, we remember more of the guilt than we do of like the fun joy. I think that can be very true. I think it can be very, not tempting, but it can be very easy to have your brain focus on sort of the negative parts. The negative, you're right. And it can be difficult to like wrap yourself in those warm memories. It's good that we we get these few pages that really build their relationship to and show their kind of shared curiosity of the world and how even though our first scene is them not getting along, but how they do actually have this very vibrant thriving relationship it's like the elasticity of their relationship yeah it's it's an accurate representation of siblings i love his ability to take like what their what he what his scene imagination is Mm -hmm. so like when they're wearing the skulls and then it shows that one panel of them dancing with the skulls as their head yes and just these like the drawings they've created around it it's like almost pagan Mm-hmm. In nature, which I think is really beautiful. And then the mom who's obsessed with church. The mom who's obsessed with church. Yeah. Early for church. <sighs> um, Can you believe I, what I love <laughs> is that it's this Sunday school sermon where this woman is talking to eight-year-olds about the dangers of hell. Yeah. 
so scary. I'm like, these are eight-year-olds. You got to rope them early and you got to rope them young before they have the time to cognitively think about what all of this means. I had a Sunday school teacher when I was like 10 or 11. And I love this story because um, it's so telling (laughs) about the poor boundaries within the church. She brought Mm -hmm. in Krispy Kreme donuts. I think that's like one of the things that brought me to church was that there were always Krispy Kreme donuts. And we're eating these one day. And for some reason, I don't know how we got on the topic of it, but she's like, you know, kids, Krispy Kreme donuts are better than sex. Oh, God. And I've always remembered that story. (laughs) True love waits. A good warm glazed donut doesn't. Let me tell you, Krispy Kreme is almost as sinful as premarital sex. (laughs) (laughs) Kids, you know what you should be hot and ready for? An original glazed Krispy Kreme donut. When you see that hot donuts now sign, you better pray. That's the only hole you should be putting your fingers through. Oh, God. Why am I crying? (laughs) I took it too far. (laughs) I love it. Wait, no, we can't go back. It's been said. (laughs) Well, and like Um, this, it's this apathy, this apathy for like engaging for the world. And it's, I think it's so beautifully, it's so beautifully expressed in the active like expression of it, where when you are a member of these churches, you actively sacrifice your right to live. You just passively live for this promise of a better world. Or in his case, I think he actually does live it. It's these motherfuckers who are like hypocrites who will do whatever the fuck they want and then practice this holier than thou act. And I I completely understand what he says when he's when he was like, I grew up striving for that world, an eternal world that would wash away my temporary misery. And that's how they rope yes. these people in. Is it's like, yeah, your life sucks, but you just have to deal with it and tithe your 10% to church and praise God. And then when you die, it'll be all right. And that's such a terrible thing because it eliminates any, like, and we see it here. It eliminates any um, catalyst for you to try to make your life better because you're just like, well, this sucks. This is and my I guess it just bear. Yeah. Yep. This is just how it is. When his teacher is trying to tell him to just put some effort into class, like put the smallest bit of effort into class. And he says, for what matters if I gain the whole world, but lose my soul. So in his, he's a teenager and he's already decided that nothing I do in this world matters. And then again, the shame tactic, like why do we continually use shame? It's not only in the church, it's in his classroom as well. Cause this teacher, though he feels he's lifting him up is also shaming him. Or at least this teacher does it in private. Is this in private? It looks like it because it looks like the other desks are empty. You're right. At least at least he shames him in private. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like at least he has good intentions. Like it appears that he has good intentions. Yeah. I feel like I, I feel bad because I feel like I don't trust any adult in this telling. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, oh, they're all here to hurt you. I mean, they're all out for their own gains. Yeah. The pastor is just telling this kid to go. I'm, I assume he's probably noticed that this kid is a little weird and he needs something to latch onto. 
And so he's giving him ministry to latch on to because it's going to become an obsession. I was going to ask you about that panel, those panels, because I don't know how I feel about it. And I want you to continue talking about it because I, I truly read it a couple of times and just wasn't sure where I fell. Where the, uh, the pastor is telling him he needs to go into ministry. Yes. I mean, I experienced that as well. It's, it's finding somebody who wants to do something good. And you can tell that they just need a push in the right direction to find what they're meant to do. And instead of being a guiding light for them and helping them discover their purpose, you hook them because you know that they look up to you and you know that they're going to believe what you say and you're going to grab somebody and get them to go into the ministry. I feel like you have to be a type of person to be a good pastor, not a Robert Pattinson devil all the time pastor, but a good pastor. And as easy as it is to steer the obsessive shy kid into the direction of focusing your entire life on delivering the word of God, you don't want a shy, self-conscious person up there talking about the book of Hezekiah. You draw in the charismatic people, not charismatic as a denomination, but charismatic as a personality trait. Because what does he jump into once he's been told that ministry is right for him? He goes to the book of Ecclesiastes, the most depressing book in the Bible. Yes. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon when he was go- when he was older and in his de- depressive phase and wondering if this lavish lifestyle he had built for himself really had any worth. Like what worst book to read in the Bible when you're making a lifelong career decision? Because that's pleasure is meaningless, toil is meaningless, wisdom is meaningless, everything is meaningless. When you're 17, that's entirely different to you because this was written at the end of a man's life who had experienced all of those things. Like Solomon is called the wisest of all the kings of Israel. You know, he had gold beyond what you can imagine. He had multiple wives and concubines. He experienced all of these things and he became depressed from it because he got too much of it, but he didn't appreciate it. But you have a teenager who says, who reads everything is meaningless and it makes them, in this case, in this specific case causes him to separate from the only physical thing that brings him joy in this world. How terrible. We've just learned that drawing is not only his joy, but it's what fosters the connection between him and his brother. That's something they share together is this desire to create together. And I heard this as a teenager. If what you're doing doesn't bring glory to God, then it's not worth doing. If the music you're making doesn't bring glory to God, if what you're drawing doesn't bring glory to God, if the conversation you're having doesn't bring glory to God, everything you do has to be Christ-centered or else it's worthless. And what a terrible thing to tell burgeoning minds who are trying to figure out what the rest of their life is going to be like. Who the adults who are saying that can't fully comprehend what it means, let alone these 
budding minds, like you said, there's because what does that mean? If it doesn't bring glory to God, if it isn't Christ centered, well, then what is Christ centered? What does bring glory mm-hmm. to God? And there is that veiled mystery that always keeps people trapped in these really toxic churches. Exactly. And it's just, it's so sad. And it's sad how the draw, the drawing style doesn't change, but it goes from, it, it becomes very frenetic mm-hmm. when he's grabbing everything he's ever drawn and burns it and connects it to, you know, the, the Israelites burning uh, animals as a sacrifice before God. I didn't even catch that, Renee. Wow. That scene of him in front of the barrel when he has his mouth open and he's just like releasing his drawings from his body, releasing this joy from his existence. It's like this exorcism of joy. A uh, new band name. Exorcism of joy. Mm-hmm. Well, and then of course, this uh, the next the next few panels I saw is like hell on earth. You think you you think your life is bad now, but wait until you spend an eternity in hell. But what if what you're already living is hell? Yeah, yeah, because he he does what a child does, which is connect this unfathomless despair to something he is aware of, something that he has experienced, and to a child, it's like, oh, it's going to be that horrible. Well, I never want to deal with that because you can't, I don't know, you can't explain the concept of eternal torment to an eight-year-old and have them fully understand it. But you can scare them. Yeah, you can terrify them. You can terrify them into believing and continue terrifying them so they never leave. Shackle them to their fears and their humanity. Yeah, the fear of their own humanity. Exactly. Like this idea that your humanity is what makes you wicked. What do you think the furnace means? Like how he always kind of hears the furnace. And then it's like they hear the furnace when it's freezing outside or when it's Mm -hmm. like winter and it's really, really cold. And he's like, I can hear the furnace, but there was no heat. And then it comes up again where he like breaks into the rec room during the um, winter retreat, the Christian winter retreat. And he like waits for the heater to come on, here's the clang clang and it starts running. And then he like goes into this meditative prayer. I think it working for him was a representation of something that he hadn't had until then. Because if you know something is there, but you can't feel it, can you really be sure it's there? So they're saying, I know that the heater's on, but I don't feel any heat. So then he goes, he escapes away to his own little haven where this heat he's been seeking at his home and has wasn't able to get suddenly it's all around him so i can i can absolutely understand how he would have a religious experience from that that whole scene broke my heart that whole scene brought back even more childhood memories because the things he's apologizing for are so infinitesimal uh, i apologize for not wis- witnessing to people and picking on my little brother like i apologize for being a child i apologize for being a 10 year old I'm sorry, God, that I'm not a fully developed adult yet who knows exactly what I'm supposed to do at all times. Oh, and there's like no love. That's what breaks my heart exactly. too. You're right. Like in a church, in a congregation where you should be taught love first and foremost, you aren't. And you are actually neglected from love. And that's what we see in these panels. Like pure fear to talk to like 
the father, oh God, dad's coming and knowing that you might get locked in a fucking cubby hole and then having to spit on yourself to like make your mom feel you and be like, yeah, they are pretty wet. So let's put the, the fan up there. To have to go to those lengths to get the most basic of necessities. Midwestern winners are no joke. And just the fact that they're having to to sleep in a room that is so cold, their blanket is freezing to the wall. I mean, I understand that his family is not well off financially, but there are some essentials you need to survive and to give a good life to your children. The main respite from his terrible existence is getting to spend time with his brother and them running around in the winter cold together. Like the one pure joy and finding solace in that. Like mm-hmm. I have my brother and on the when we were playing, we weren't cold. Even though you're surrounded by the cold itself because you're running around and having fun and spending time with someone who brings your life joy, you don't feel cold. Ah, the church camp. It's just like, I do remember all the shitty rich people at church camp. I would never say that I got picked on the same way he does, but I definitely have felt like an outcast in my, you know, in church. And the fact that he talks about how, like you said, the church is supposed to be a loving place. And, you know, for you to experience this rejection from the secular world is one thing, but to also experience it in your church where it's supposed to be sacred ground is a a different negative feeling altogether. And you do, like, he wonders how God could look so favorably on these people who are treating him so badly when, in his mind, he's trying his hardest to be a good Christian. And it's these, like, same kids who are going to grow up and preach the same rhetoric that these adults are preaching. Like, you know that these adults who are in power acted exactly like these kids did. And it's and it's this, like, it's that weird absence of a of the presence of adults in our childhoods, you know, it's that idea that mm-hmm. you really are left alone to your own little like concubine of youth and you are raised mm-hmm. by wolves essentially. And I think he really kind of illustrates that well. It's it's again, like adults show up like once or twice to shame him for his decisions. And then it's back to the cruelty of being raised by the youth that you're surrounded by. Yeah. And there's no, there's no, you think at some point there would be, and there might be later on in this book, but you think at some point there would be an adult who would recognize what he's going through and rescue him, but he never gets rescued. He has to rescue himself. Yes. He has to do what he can to stay under the radar from this abuse. And, you know, in, in that instance, it's sneaking out into the rec room at night to apologize for being a child. You know, this poor, poor child feels guilty because he got teased for reading the Bible. So he said he wasn't. To him, that's a grave sin. It just makes me think how many kids who have grown up and will grow up having to kind of like apologize for those things. It really breaks my heart. You know, you see that little like bit of happiness when he's in high school and he figures out, as I did, and I'm sure you did too, how to find people like him, how to find the outcasts, how to find the people who 
you know, I don't want to say not buying into these bullshit because he still very much is buying into the bullshit, but people who aren't going to treat him negatively, who understand what it's like to not be the cool, popular, rich kid. Well, and I love too that like when they start smoking the weed in the cabin, he doesn't outright, he's like, he's like I don't disagree with it. I just don't do it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really beautiful moment too. It's a moment where you see him kind of blossoming in this like, I do follow my own moral compass. I'm not judging you for doing what you what you think brings you joy. I just personally don't want to do it. And that's what makes him different from the rest of these shitty people he's around because he doesn't have that sanctimonious, self-righteous attitude. He's just kind of like, oh, no, I don't do that. But if you want to, totally fine. I do love when the uh, the punk guy gives the gives the adult the adult counselors the middle finger as they run into the woods so good so fun and it's like they're not doing anything wrong they're just standing outside and that's somehow wrong it's like they know that they're not drinking the kool-aid fully so they have to keep like an extra eye on them like assuming they're gonna get into trouble Mm -hmm. exactly and the worst thing they do is go to the boys cabin and start messing with people's things and then i love the way he kind of um he kind of is like, no, it's cool to make fun of the jocks, but that guy just sounds like a helpless nerd. There's almost there can be a bitterness when you're considered an outsider. I think we saw this a little bit going back to episode two in Persepolis, where a few of the like alternative people she hung out with definitely have a chip on their shoulder towards everybody who isn't like them because they have been treated negatively for who they are. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be easy to to do that. But he doesn't have this attitude. He still is like, just because I've been picked on doesn't mean I'm going to pick on everybody when I get the chance to. It's like we're all cruel, right? Like mm-hmm. regardless of where you are, you find there's always going to be like some sense of resentment, some sense of cruelty based on if that's like bred by the parent telling the child, like, this is why you should hate someone or vice versa, the child who is hated, finding reasons to resent the other child who resents them for reasons that are irrational, not really founded in observable fact, right? Mm-hmm. I, hate when, I hate when people say, right, I hate that I just did that. <laughs> God, it's like my least favorite, it's my least favorite trait is when a man finishes a sentence with right and here I am doing it. Well, but I don't think you're doing it for the same reason some of them do it. Like some of them are like, right, because I'm obviously right and there's no way like, you I'm could really disagree with me. I'm really trying to defend myself, cover my ass here. So, right, like mm-hmm. you agree with me, right? I can sleep better at night. I love that he brings up kind of hating the mass religious idea, like that he kind of brings up the topic of faith being a very personal journey. Which it should be. It absolutely should be. And how he like won't sing in the choir. He like won't add his voice to it because he doesn't necessarily agree. Every person worships differently. Exactly. And forcing this mob mentality is taking away that the personal part. Like you're you're taking away the personal relationship somebody has with their deity of choice and saying, No, I know better about how you're supposed to be worshiping. And two, like I love that we end up getting this moment because it feeds into what you're saying. When he goes under, when they go under the basketball machine, he's just sitting with Raina. 
that just has this way more meaningful personal interaction than any of those fucking sermons would have given him, right? Right. I think from his experience, the church was robbing him of that. Like mm-hmm. He wasn't able to engage in personal sweet moments because the church actively condemned those. Because the church, because that youth, that youth retreat would have condemned him being under there with her. Oh yeah, absolutely. If not just for the fact that it's a girl and a boy hiding together, but they're not going to the sermon, which is compulsory. Even though they have, I mean, I'm assuming no intention of hooking up under the basketball machine. Mm-hmm. Like, not only are they missing the sermon that these adults deem mandatory, but also these insidious fears that these adults probably have around a boy and a girl being alone together also play a factor into that as well. Because there's no, I will, and this is something I feel like evangelical Christians miss out on is this idea of platonic touch and platonic companionship. Yes. 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 This idea that you can like spend these close moments with people and that it can be friendship. It doesn't have to be sexualized. It's just a moment of two people relaxing and enjoying each other's company. There's nothing weirdly sexual about it until you try and make it weirdly sexual. Absolutely. Oh my God. And the and when that final panel where he has his hand in her hair and they're holding hands, it's not, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a sexual image. Mm-mm. It's just, it's two people relying on one another. And it's the humming of the furnace, this warmth. He's getting two versions of warmth that he doesn't necessarily get at home from what we've seen so far. Because... While we do see him having fun with his brother, we don't see close, intimate moments with him and either of his parents. And for him yes. and his brother, physical closeness is like the last thing they do. He's frustrated by the fact that they have to be physically close at night. But here's the situation where he's physically close to somebody, surrounded by this warmth that he doesn't get elsewhere. And it's beautiful. It just lulls him to sleep. What do you think is going to happen in the next two chapters? I would love to see the way his relationship grows with Reyna. And I would love to see the way his faith develops. Because you already have, like he says, when he has that growing seed of skepticism that ironically is planted by the church itself, which is typically how it happens. And I would like to see how that fosters and how he continues to grow and develop as a person. And, you know, I I like Craig. Like I said, I can relate to him a lot. I really want him to find some friends. Find some friends, Craig. It's high school. That's where you find the weirdos. So, I don't know. What, um, have you read this before? I can't remember. No, this is my first time reading this. Okay. So, what are you, what are you hoping for? I'm hoping those same things. I think we're in tandem in that. I'm also curious about, I want to learn more about the babysitter. Oh, fucking asshole. I want to know. I want to just know more. I want to get closure around that because that freaks me out. I also want to get closure around the father. I want to know more about their relationship with their dad and their mom. I want to learn more about the dynamics of the family because why child services haven't come and taken these children away, I don't know yet. I'm hoping we can see because we do see that brief moment of loving affection from their mother when the boys are covered in spit sweat. And she's like, oh, well, maybe we can give them the fan after all. I would like to see more 
loving kindness from his mother. Because she does. She obviously is invested. She's like, look mm-hmm. at the look at the hand turkey your brother made. Go tell him that you saw him, what he made. Yeah. Nope. Tom falls off the cliff and dies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Jesus. Because he, re- yeah, he recognizes that Tom is the bully. Which, I mean, to be fair, I think Jerry might be the bully. I always kind of took Tom's side, if we're being honest. Jerry did invade his house. Yeah, it's like it's definitely a turf war between the two of them. I need to be careful, though. I don't want to be canceled for taking Tom's side in the Tom and Jerry situation. Oh, we're going to be canceled way earlier. Don't worry. <laughs> but I'm not going <laughs> to tell you why. Oh, no. Oh, good. I love an October surprise. October surprise. we're both canceled first season canceled i think those are probably the main things i'm looking for i don't know and i'm i'll be i'll be vulnerable in this moment because i feel like i've been like pretty vulnerable pretty outspoken this particular podcast Mm -hmm. i feel like there are parts of me that do disconnect when we get into talking about the church and when we do get into discussions of like kind of the emotionally uh, abusive and manipulative nature of particularly evangelical uh, sex of the church. And I feel, I feel like that's what happens when I talk about it. It's like, I don't really know how to talk about it except by shitting on it. And I know that that's not exactly (laughs) fair either, but I just don't know, Renee. I feel like, I feel like when I talk about like right now, when I'm talking, I feel like I don't know how to form words around what I'm feeling. It's such a a personal thing and it's such, it's something that you are engulfed in for years and then suddenly you're not. Yeah. And it's, you know, reconciling. Did I change? Am I different now? Did I change or did God change? Well, I'm very much looking forward to next week when we cover chapters three and four. I'm excited. I'm ready to start now. Let's just read it together right now. Yes. Deal. It'll just be a live reading. Oh my God. That should be our coffee offer. Is that if you donate, we it's us today. I, I still think that's a great idea. It's us in black dresses doing readings of Shakespeare. Whatever's free domain. Just live Skype readings. You get the secret password to our Zoom meeting where we read a Shakespeare play. I mean, whenever we can start doing video, that should be one of our offers too, is that you get to watch um moments of unedited video oh yeah get the extra hour of rambling that we that we, we edit out to make- <laughs> <laughs> animal sounds they're all just animal sounds <laughs> mm-hmm. so thank you listeners for once again tuning in and uh once again sticking around to the very end If this story also felt weirdly autobiographical for you too, the way it did for me and Jace, please feel free to shoot us an email at readthisway.podcast at gmail.com or send us a DM at the same one, readthisway.podcast, just on Instagram. I am very interested, and I'm sure Jace would be very interested as well, to hear about your personal experience, especially if you grew up in the Midwest or the Southeast, growing up in, you know, the church environment and, you know, queers growing up in the church environment. I don't know if Craig Thompson turned out to be queer, but that's just another check in the, uh, on the grid. Unfortunately, well, I don't know if it's unfortunately or fortunately, but, um, but I hope you enjoyed 
listening to this autobiographical work. And I hope you were able to whet your appetite for you to listen to the next three episodes where we will be covering uh, the rest of the chapters of the book, because that's how it goes. So please tune in next time where we will be diving even further under the blanket of blankets. And I am Renee Pogue, and he's Jay Swingate. I'm Jay Swingate. You've been listening to the Read This Way podcast. Read and now it's too podcast. late to turn it off because it's over. Turn it off because it's over. <laughs>